I guess having a crowd in front of you makes it easier to spread some kind of a message. <laughs> Unless you're me. I don't know what he did to upset them. When one fish turns, they all just go right there. We see that happen with audiences all the time. I watched this film of yours uh, called A Venue for the End of the World, which is a sensational film and deserves all the awards it got and everything. Um, but it's very much an essay film. It's like your your document of I'm exploring this big topic. You know, Mick Jagger, rock star, is like Adolf Hitler, you know, politician. And don't we see that today? You know, in American politics this year, it's just been all about the rock stars on the stage. Um and what a topic, what a rich topic to explore. And and you not only wrote about it as a film, but you immersed yourself in it. And I think that what makes... Yeah, there's a lot of people who put themselves in their films, but you did it in a way that was both serious. Uh, you know, you were really trying to set out to unpack this, but not so serious that we kind of got lost in this boring, dry, you know, monologue. You actually enjoyed yourself along the way and we watched you, you know, and without giving away the end, you know, the end is just wonderful because you are you are there experiencing and trying to unpack this thing. So I think teaching from a place of, you know, hands-on doing stuff is such a great way to teach. Um, was that what got you into it? What? Tell me a little bit about that film and what sort of, got you into making that in the first place really the film came out of the um i mean obviously i'm a big music fan i was at a roger waters concert who was the um front man for pink floyd and uh he started the concert with basically a scene like a theatrical scene from the movie the wall which is um this fascist dictator character with an armband and everything comes out with a machine gun and uh, and uh, light, big, big sort of spotlights come down, uh, and he pinpoints certain people and is like, "Get them up against the wall, get them up against," because that one has spots, or, or you know, this sort of uh, uh, twist, you know, on on what an actual dictator would do. But uh, so, yeah, in in a sort of uh, parody way, he, he was doing that. But but I'm sure that everybody was that was there because as soon as he came out in his black trench coat and the armband. Uh, everyone was on their feet and screaming and cheering. And when he had the spotlights on people, uh, they would point at these people in, in the spotlights. And the people who were spotlighted were really happy. They were like, oh, my goodness, Roger Waters is looking at me. Uh, but everyone in the crowd was like, yeah, pointing and je- and kind of, yeah, and jeering in, in, you know, in a vaguely supportive but also not way. And uh, when that song finished and the lights came down and everybody sat, uh, I'm sure that everybody that was there, sort of with 14,000 people at Rod Laver Arena, would have been thinking that that was absolutely amazing theatre, uh, but also this is exactly what Hitler did. Is that like uh, other than you know the message because the message was was different? But um, yeah, if it had been Hitler, who knows? Maybe those poor people in the spotlights would have ended up uh, worse for wear. So um, I was sitting there, and so for the rest of the concert, I was like, "This that what a like bizarre feeling to have witnessed a, a situation that was as close to a Nazi rally reenactment as, as hopefully will ever happen. And uh, from there, that germ of an idea of what does it take to rile up an audience into a frenzy or, or um, sort of a mass hysteria group think, um, whatever kind of label you want to put on it, what creates um, the collective consciousness 
of a crowd to become one entity. So the film, that's the question of the film. What is it that, that creates that collective consciousness idea? And uh, so that's what I set out to explore. And the sort of, yeah. Uh, and so I was like, well, and it took, that was, that concert was actually in 2007. Um, and the movie was completed in 2014. So the germ of an idea, uh, you know, I was stringing along for a while and I really, I got the, um, uh, uh, like in the encapsulated form of the idea while I was still at VCA in that final year, I was, um, speaking to Steve Thomas about it, who was the, um, documentary lecturer at VCA. Uh, who I learned heaps and heaps and heaps from. And uh, one of those things was to really boil an idea down to just what, like, what is it really about in a, like, in a one sentence thing? And if you can't say in, a, in one sentence what your film's really about, you don't know what it's really about. And uh, so, yeah, it took me <laughs> about five years to figure out what it was about. And, uh, and from there, I sent out, you know, requests for interviews with different people and, and um, got a bunch of rejections. But the ones that did come through and are in the film were really fantastic. Oh, well, they were, they were top name people and, you know, and you got to travel and you actually got to meet them overseas and, yeah, have lounge room conversations with some pretty well-known people in there, Dave, not still today. Um, but the title, the, the concept, you'd taken it, you know, from that light bulb of an idea to something that was, was a remarkable piece of work. And, and, and I think it also speaks to the, the tenacity that you need as a filmmaker to just keep going. Like it was probably times, months went by and you were just sick of it and you didn't want didn't to go with it at all, did you? Was there mo moments like that? There were moments when I I was doubting whether or not it was going to make sense, <laughs> uh, and but the thing was I I had so much fun editing that it took two years to edit. I I did my the final interview in America was in um, January of 2012, and we finished editing uh, in April of 2014. So two and a bit years. Of, of nutting out the story and figuring out structurally exactly what goes where and how um, how the story should be told. And I think because I took that time to do that, uh, I, um, I think it, it really did sort of come together in the end. Um, and I enjoyed that whole process. I'm sure if I'd done it qu more quickly, I might have gotten sick of it. I don't know if that makes sense. It, but, no, it does. Uh, it makes perfect sense. But I really uh, – as soon as I realized – uh, that that the amount of public domain footage that's out there of old black and white white reels of um, I mean of World War Two stuff, but also of um, just all kinds of cool stuff uh, in, in, involving crowds. Like there was some um, stuff with the Chairman Mao from China with this giant like biggest crowd I've ever seen in my life uh, overtaking Tiananmen Square in about I think it's like not the fifties. It must have been like fifty five or something like that. Uh, and it was like a tidal wave, but it's people. Uh, all running toward uh, the uh, Forbidden City, uh, the big wall where uh, Chairman Mao would come out. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it's like a helicopter shot. It would have to be a helicopter shot because you look at it for a second, you're like, is that like a – because it's black and white footage. Is that a wave? Oh, no, that's Tiananmen Square. And that – oh, that's people. Wow. Uh, so there would have been – I mean, 
bigger than Woodstock easily. Woodstock mm-hmm. and and, and it's all available to you to use. Yeah, and it's free. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm trying to get at is that there's amazing footage out there that's free. And as soon as I found that, uh, the uh, entertainment value of the film went up because there's there's a lot of that stuff that's kind of funny as well, uh, uh, like educational films that deal with exactly the kind of uh, stuff that I'm talking about, like um, there's there were two that were fantastic about stage fright, which is kind of a, a through line of the film in in that I have stage fright, and when I get out in front of a crowd, uh, it's it's very nerve wracking. So, uh, and of course, you know, because of that, I was like, well, then if I put myself in the film and we can show me feeling uncomfortable, like frequently then uh yeah then the humor value can increase a little bit too and i think i mean that's another thing that i'm really keen on with my students is to say um don't be afraid of like if you be yourself then often some some humor will come through that you're not even aware is there but audiences will really connect with it so one one uh, craft question then about uh, filming you know you say you had lots of lots of footage how did you start to pull that together you know just, just talking about the the film um was it did you already have clips of it there did you do it mostly on paper what was what was that some of the actual practical steps and techniques that you used to take this massive you know public domain footage and stuff that you'd shot and pull it into shape in in shape of film I think, yeah, I basically spent the best part of a year just on that. Uh, it was a huge thing. But, um, I mean, I'm just, I guess I'm just one of those uh, movie nerds that just love seeing, like, historical footage and all that stuff. So I, I was just eating it up the whole time. Uh, and But keeping track of it, keeping track of it is the challenge. Yes. You know, did you do it on paper? I had, um, I had a massive project in Final Cut Pro or something. Um, what I did was I found a few um, like big chunks of World War II footage that I, I plugged the computer into the TV and just watched it with a pen and paper in hand and noted down time code of stuff that I thought would be useful. Uh, so I did that with um, – it's a series called Why We Fight, which was produced by the American government during World War II, directed by Frank Capra. Uh, which is just amazing that I'm able to use footage from Frank Capper in one of my movies. Uh, but um, so that was – I did the first two of those. One is, one is uh, essentially about the Nazis and the other one is sort of just a general overview of this is why we're in a war now. And I just thought that was amazing. Of, of There is this documentary out there that is talking about the World, World War Two as though it's actually physically happening now because that's what was going on. Uh, and it won Best Academy, uh, sort of best best documentary at the Oscars in like 1942 or something. It's like all the fact that this stuff exists and is free for us to use because it was made by the government is just insane. Uh, but so cool. And so that was what uh, it was pen and paper for that. However, with the um, actually, it was pen and paper for the other stuff too because I would find clips. Um, I would search by keyword. Uh, like uh, performance, crowd, World War Two, Nazi, uh, whatever, uh, beards. <laughs> There's a little thing about beards, which uh, I hope uh, draws a little bit of humor. But um, in that a lot of uh, fascist dictators have facial hair. So, right. so um, yeah, so search by keyword and then I would sort of download um, – the preview files of, of all of these ones that sounded interesting based on their sort of keywords and uh, descriptions. And then I would scrub through in Final Cut and uh, see, you know, 
uh, whether it felt like this was something that I would either look at in more depth or I'd just note down time codes then and there in Final Cut and um, and, and check all that out. So there, there were probably 200 clips that I did that for, uh, possibly more. Uh, there were probably about 500 clips that I downloaded and sort of went through very briefly to see what, what was going on. So it was such a pool of stuff to deal with. So if anyone out there wants to, to work with public domain footage, the uh, Prelinger archive is available. I think if you go to archive.org, um, there's a link at the tab at the top for all of this uh, old school footage that's just fantastic. So, so that's, that's a handy thing to know because, uh, yeah, that opens up a world of stuff, as you say, yeah. Absolutely. And I have used some of it with students uh, occasionally. There's, we have a TV uh, channel. Oh, it's, a, um, it's a YouTube channel, but we have a TV studio at school that I run, and uh, it's a three-camera setup. It's a gorgeous space. We've got a huge grant from the government to put it together. And um, it's uh, – yeah, we have this channel, uh, which maybe we can put that in the links too. Uh, and, uh, the channel's called SOC TV, South Oakley College TV, and the kids uh, basically put together a show every three weeks, which is somewhere between eight and 15 minutes long, uh, and we put that up on YouTube. And uh, they're usually sort of panel shows uh, with, with humor and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, we try to, as much as possible, keep it uh, completely our copyright, so we try not to use material that belongs to anyone else. Uh, and in in terms of that, we we frequently use public domain stuff to add. Like there was one, we did a Back to the Future episode, and um, instead of using stuff from Back to the Future, we were like, well, we can use historical footage from the Prelinger archive uh, to pretend. And so at one point, they throw to an ad break, and of course, the ad is um, uh, an old Anset ad because they, they were talking about going back in time. So here's something that was relevant in 1985, and so an, an answer. So uh, there's lots of, you know, fun stuff like that. And, of course, I had to explain to them about what ANSET actually, like, ever was. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's fun. And, um, yeah, when, when the kids sort of, you know, have these options to play with, it uh, opens up a totally different um, world. And it's a way, I mean, if they're studying history, it's also a fantastic resource because, uh, you know, I mean, the thing with Chairman Mao, like, to actually see that footage of what Tiananmen Square was like at a rally in, in the 50s, it beats anything Trump's ever done. Uh, <laughs> and of course, I'm speaking about Trump in, in, a, in the way that he's probably a, a worse person than uh, some of the other dictators we've seen. But, like, yeah, there's lots of, lots of cool stuff out there to check out. Yeah. So, so running a TV station as well, which is effectively what you're doing, you've, you've got your hands full there, but that sounds like another great opportunity to be teaching stuff in a very hands-on way. So are you, do you divide up in your own mind about, okay, now I'm teaching my students doing the vet course and now I'm teaching doing this running of the, you know, this, the show that you put on? Yeah. Oh yeah. You have to be very segmented. I think if we're running around doing all that, um, I, uh, I forgot to tell you this, actually, the uh, year seven, I, I run at the moment a year seven class called SOC TV, which is all of the year sevens that come to our school are enrolled. They do this class once a fortnight, which is, again, very hands-on. They'll script a program, they'll go up in the studio and we'll record it and we'll learn all about the professional roles and they'll be vision switching, they'll be running the cameras, they'll be floor managing, directing, the whole bit. Uh, and to see all of these year sevens, uh, after, you know, it, it takes a little while to get their heads around it, but, uh, by the end of term one, they're doing fantastic stuff. And we just did one on Friday, um, which was, 
the, it was actually the, for this class, it's the last time I'm going to see them for the year. And they ran, uh, in a 75 minute period, we had five groups of about five kids each in each group, uh, all of whom presented a five minute, uh, show and because it's the end of the year i gave them the option of you could do a skit you could do a panel show you could do a news broadcast any any of the stuff that we've covered in the year um like a game show perhaps or a um a comedy segment from something like the letterman show uh and they all chose different things we had some we had a cooking show we had all this stuff but the greatest part about that for me on friday was that the quality preparation that these kids put in was fantastic and uh the on top of that we got through five groups, each doing a five-minute thing in a 75-minute period. Uh, when you think about like factoring in setup time, getting your camera angles right, uh, all of that stuff, I just sort of at the end of it, uh, and as they were leaving, I was just like, uh, "Kids, you're you're actually you know outperforming some of the professional crews I've worked with." And they were like, "Ah, oh, cool, all right," and they're on their way because they're year sevens, and that. that like, well, that, we're great, cool. Uh, but they are they're really um, fantastic kids. So that's that's what I'm talking about in terms of this school, South Oakley, is that the kids are, um, and for nine years in a row, they've all been fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's uh, it, it may have something to do with, you know, they feel quite privileged to have a space like that because we're one of the few high schools uh, in, in the state that has – um, a professional quality studio, <laughs> and certainly that's government funded in a, in a public school. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, I've I've been to a number of private schools to look at their media setup as well. Because when we got the funding for this, we, we wanted to know what other people had and how they used it. Uh, and we're yeah, I, I don't want to brag too much, but this studio just top of the range. It's really fantastic. Any quick tips for anyone that's setting up? You know that. Say the school has just said, look, you can have X amount of, you know, thousands of dollars. Um, you know, have you got any quick tips on how to do that effectively in a school or is that too big a question? Uh, I'll try and boil it down. I think the number one thing is try and find a good room. Uh, the space that we've got, uh, because South Oakley was uh, a technical school back in the 70s uh, and my wife's parents actually went there, which is uh, a whole other story, but um, the... Uh, the studio space itself was built as a studio and it's kind of the, the, the school is kind of built around it. There's a theater, which is 300 seats, uh, which is really fantastic. And backing onto that in the upstairs section is this giant TV studio. Um, and the floor space we have is bigger than the channel 10 newsroom. Uh, we, again, when we were sort of looking at how we're going to spend the grant, uh, we went to channel 10, we went to channel nine, uh, and we went to ABC to, to look at how at a real, professional studio and i've been there you know a number of times and uh yeah the channel 10 newsroom was in comparison to our space was quite pokey and i just sort of went we're we're gonna have some fun with this this is gonna be yeah so and we've got a beautiful lighting rig and we've got um yeah top of the line cameras on beautiful peds that are pedestals that move um you know on wheels and and do fantastic dolly shots and tracking and everything you could have asked for so we're very very lucky um anyway sorry getting back to advice so finding finding a good space is number one yeah find a good space because if you've got a flat sort of floor that you could then um you know uh if you wanted to find a way of getting a tripod on wheels or something like that, then if it'll move nice and smoothly, um, 
you want to try and get it as soundproof as possible. Uh, and, and because this was purpose-built, it is absolutely dead sound-wise. So I've recorded bands in there too with the Vet Music Kids uh, just because it you can record something that's like impossible to record, like a vibraphone or something like that, that just has all of these reflections. Uh, and in that space, it's just gorgeous because it does not reflect. Uh, and, yeah, so the more soundproofing you can get and, and the more sort of space you can get, the better. Uh, and beyond that, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of cameras you got. It doesn't matter what kind of vision switching stuff you've got because um, all that stuff can come and go and change. And, all, and uh, at the end of the day, you know, you can pick up a, quite a decent quality video camera now for a couple of hundred bucks. So, yeah, it's more about the space and the sound. You can do this. Tell me about yeah this this the disappearing act. So I do want to raise this with you as as a filmmaker too. You know I, I go looking for this film, fabulous film called Borrowed Time, made by you know a crew of highly trained professional animators, um, and they have put it on. Well, I, I don't know whether it was. I think it's still in the festival circuit. There's this whole thing that some teachers may not be aware of you know there's this film circuit period where films disappear you know and then after that it comes out of the dark and everyone can use it and you know f films goes through mysterious you know exposures and and hidings if you like in their lifetime and that can be really frustrating as a teacher trying to find a film i had a teacher um when i was running campfire who rang up and you know we were supplying short films that we had in our collection and she said I'm trying to find this. Have you got this film? I, she said, we've got this uh, retreat day for the students tomorrow and there's this film that used to be online and it's not there anymore. And like the whole retreat day relies on it. And I'm going, well, why didn't you think of this earlier? And then, but that's, that's beside the story. <laughs> but the good thing was I was actually able to find it on Vimeo. I, I was able to find it elsewhere. But, but it does leave you with this sense that, oh, if it's out there now, I better just capture it and do the illegal thing and download it when I'm not supposed to. So... I guess I, I don't know what my question is, but I'm just thinking aloud about you know what how, what what's the best tip for teachers? You know, on the one hand, as a filmmaker, you understand the value of if it's available online and you stream it, you should stream it. But as a teacher, you, you know the Wi-Fi is going to go down in class. You just want to make sure it's going to work, so you want to capture it. How do how do we reward filmmakers? But how do we also um, free it up so stuff is just available for people to use when they want to use it? It's such an interesting thing because um, I, I use YouTube all the time. I'm frequently will show like if, if we're looking at um, uh, if it we're in a media textbook when I was teaching VCE media last year, uh, there would be so many examples of films and we don't have time to watch the whole film. So I would just be like, um, we're going to watch the trailer for this because it's making some interesting points. And if this pikes your interest, guys, go watch the film. Uh, and that, yeah, on a number of occasions, the students came back the next week and were like, well, watch that. It was amazing. That's it's so good. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm trying to think if there's been an instance where, uh, where uh, the net hasn't been working or something like that. I used to bring in a lot of DVDs of my own, uh, and, and show examples of like just short scenes of things, um, which has proven very useful. But short films don't often, you know, they're not often that easy to find on a DVD uh, form. So, um, 
And I guess I guess your own story with your own film is is different again because that is feature length and it and it has been released as a DVD and it you know you've stitched up so you've got distribution arrangements with people. Tell us a little bit about that from your point of view, Mike. Well, um, the so the film I think because of Trump and the fact that you know these demagogues are taking over uh, politically right now, the uh, the film. You know, uh, was found by an American distributor called Brink Vision, uh, who uh, offered to distribute it in America for us. Uh, and so, you know, we did the whole contract thing and got it checked by a lawyer and all the rest of that stuff. And um, yeah, so it's now available to buy in uh, in Barnes and Noble and Target and all these places in America. That I, I just was like, uh, all right, cool. Thank you for doing that for us. I could never have done that happening on my own. Uh, so that that's been really interesting to just the fact that people are able to find the film uh, and, and places like Google Play uh, and Amazon and stuff like that. So it's it's out there and people are watching it, and I'm just thrilled that they are. Um, on day three of the film, after it came out on DVD, uh, suddenly um, YouTube was getting lots of hits on our trailer which is up on, on the Devil Blue Films channel. And uh, I was like, that's awesome. We're getting so many hits on the trailer. I'm going to go, you know, and, and I looked at all the analytics to see where it was coming from. And it was being linked through a Russian torrent site on day three. So we we were being torrented uh, very early. Uh, and part of me was like, because um, I never set out to make money with this movie. I, I, it was a passion project, and uh, yeah, I'm not, you know, relying on uh, filmmaking for my income because teaching, you know, is is a very um, rewarding, uh, very like, you know, emotionally and and monetarily. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I mean, you know, teachers don't make that much money, but it's like if you love what, you do, it's like yeah, yeah, uh, it's well worth like yeah, I'd I'd do half of it for free. So. Um, yeah, it's really, um, uh, weird. Yeah. To see that people are, are sort of sharing it illegally and I'm going, <laughs> that's like, okay. I mean, you know, I could, I wouldn't say no if you wanted to go buy it guys, but I'm kind of happy that you, um, that you, people are interested in watching it and, and stuff like that. But there are people who do rely on filmmaking for their, um, you know, income and, and that's, uh, Yeah. That's that's where it's really a problem. So, uh, yeah, I guess in terms of using uh, movies in in class, if there's a way to pay for it, then then yes. <laughs> but um, you know, if it's on YouTube though, uh, and and it's from you know the people that because there's a bunch of my stuff on YouTube that I would happily allow anyone to use for whatever. Um, non-commercial purposes they wanted to uh, and that yeah has happened and it, people have emailed me and said you know I showed this in, in my class or whatever um, sometimes American teachers tend to um, there's a short film about New York City that's on the Devil Blue Films uh, YouTube page which apparently has some educational value I'm not quite sure what that is but um, something about um, uh, probably yeah civic community uh values and stuff like that but anyway um basically i think uh yeah if there's no way of getting it commercially then what do you do 
you've got to you've got to teach and you've got to use the, the best tools to do that yeah that's right and I, and i think you know having now spent you know i think campfire i started as an idea in 1996 you know and, and I, so i've been immersed in the space for you know 10 years basically and realized that actually we're on the horizon of something changing now and we are you know youtube is starting to do it we're starting to get i, yeah. I think yeah. it's been a strange window in history when you know the rights holders and the users have been out of sync but i think that is changing yeah. with all sorts of micropay systems you know there's this wonderful the copyright copyright uh what they call themselves i'll find it later but an organization in the uk um uh, finding ways to to connect creators with users, and you only need a, a little amount of money, and you know, simplifying the the pay path is is part of the secret. Mm. And whether that's through YouTube ads or there's so many different models, but trying to create curate your own collection is is not the answer, which was what Camfire was trying to do. Um, but as you say, we're even as filmmakers, we're caught in this. I just want lots of people to see it um, versus, well, I want to rely on it for money or maybe I don't, but every story is different. And as a teacher, mm. you just want to go, there it is. I just want to use it. Yeah. So it's a complicated story, but my feeling is we're moving into a space when that will be less and less of an issue and it'll be taken care of through the technological capabilities that are, that are coming up. That's my gut feeling about it anyway. <laughs> The other thing I would add to that is the um, I, I had someone volunteering for me at one stage at Campfire who was right into theatrical makeup and how amazing she had this craft that she was learning about how to make an arm look like it was completely severed and mangled i'm going that's really gross but that is so clever you know and you know you can we think of our own limitations in the filmmaking craft but if you get someone that's really into that that's great and filmmaking is about teamwork and and working with other people who are into that weird stuff yeah. like that you know? well the collaborative elements of Everything that I teach, I, I really push to the fore because, I mean, musically, you need to work in an ensemble. Uh, and filmically, you need to be able to wrangle people and, and work with a whole bunch of different people that you may or may not have worked with before or know very well or uh, any of that kind of stuff. And um, the cross, uh, oh, uh, the extracurricular stuff I find really interesting because uh, you've got kids from, uh, I mean, my TV studio group is year seven to 11. Uh, and there's about two kids in each year level. So they all have, they don't know each other very well at the beginning, and by the end of the year, they're all good friends, and they, they all get along, they know each other quite well. And they've created fantastic content together, uh, and it's available for, you know, for the school to watch in the theatre or for people online to go and check out. Um, and to see how rewarding it is for them to, for a year seven to be friends with a, with a year 12 and to actually... You know, know each other quite well is is a really. I mean, if you're that year seven, that's that's an ace card for you. So, uh, and and when you're year twelve, you know, you get to be the expert and you get to show the year sevens what they're, what they're doing. So that happens in so many different subjects anyway. Um, but the collaborative nature of filmmaking um, is, I mean, you can't make a film without a team of people. Uh, even if you know, even if you're like me and, and hiding away in a, um, you know back room of your house and over the editing keys and looking for other people's films and stuff like that um uh 
because and yeah because it was just me doing the editing but uh in terms of getting the film made i had my wife sky uh producing it for me arranging interviews um setting up accommodation uh which she managed to get for free in a lot of places which was lovely in america in exchange for a credit at the end of the film uh and and of course all our interview subjects and the other thing that was really amazing was collaborating with people who had shot footage in the 60s because there's a whole section on the film about woodstock and i had people I went on YouTube and found clips from Woodstock of people who owned the footage that had shot it on Super 8 because I couldn't afford to go to Warner Brothers and say, I need to use these clips of Woodstock that everyone's seen before anyway. Uh, the stuff that I found, uh, you know, people didn't know it existed because everyone's like, Woodstock, we'll go to the movie. Uh, so in our film, uh, A Venue for the End of the World, there is footage in there from Woodstock that's really unseen, uh, which is better a million times better than just playing clips that everyone's seen a million times before. Uh, so I was able to uh, communicate directly uh, with the filmmakers who had, like, you know, it's just super eight. They're fairly amateurish. But to collaborate with those people and to get their permission to use it in the film, uh, like just getting an email from someone who was at Woodstock is just amazing. So uh, that that was lovely, uh, let alone, you know, going out and meeting a whole bunch of them too. But um and the other thing that was really cool, there was a guy called Ed Folger who shot the um, one of the giant anti-war protests at um, – it's that scene in Forrest Gump where uh, you've got the Cleopatra's needle and the big lake thing, that man-made square lake with the statue. It's in the front of the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, and there are – there's like, you know, there's probably 400,000 people all lining the edge of this beautiful – body of water uh and then like because that was a real event and and it really happened and there's people there and so i got to communicate with him who shot 16 millimeter footage of that event uh and so i spent part of this movie sort of feeling a little bit like forrest gump in that I'm, i've got you know all these contacts who were there uh it was just yeah well i mean stuff like finding out um that uh, two of the people that I interviewed, um, so Chip Monk, who was the uh, Rolling Stones lighting and stage designer, uh, he also did lighting and stage design for JFK uh, back, you know, uh, pre-Stones. And uh, my jaw hit the floor when he told me that. Because I'm, I'm there in a room, it's me and him and a camera. Uh, I'm just like, I'm in a room alone with someone who knew JFK. What? How is that a thing? Uh, and that happened again with uh, D.A. Pennybaker, who uh, we also interviewed um, because of his his work with concert films, because he did Ziggy Stardust, he did Dylan's stuff and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, he also was, unbeknownst to me, until sitting across from him, uh, that he was the official White House cinematographer uh, for the JFK um, early-ish period um he was commissioned by life magazine to just go and hang out with jfk for a year like how is that like how is this person i know and well and he was also one of the founders along with um you know the mazels brothers he was one of those pioneering filmmakers in the in the days of you know verite and you know um i think they called it direct cinema or something you know that was he was one of those dudes and that was why because he had that job but you know, it's incredible that the license that being a filmmaker gives you to get into other people's worlds, I think, isn't it? For sure. Uh, it's it's the greatest thing. It's just it's a free ticket to anything. <laughs> you were saying that you got married and your wife was the producer, or maybe that happened before. But along the way, you've added an, another dimension to your life, and that's having a having a kid. 
So having a child, how has that changed and how do you find your struggle with balancing life, being a dad and a filmmaker and a teacher? How do you do that? Uh, oh, well, it's tricky. Uh, <laughs> everything uh, now happens after Felix has gone to bed. Uh, and, yeah, that's – so, I, I mean, yeah, basically I've put the film stuff on the shelf for this year. Uh, and I've, I've, you know, done a couple of little things editing wise. Uh, but yeah, again, that's sort of like after the 7 PM bedtime, uh, then yeah, I'll go and do that because he's, he's now about to turn nine months old. Uh, so yeah, the last nine months it's been, it's all about him and it should be, uh, and I'm hoping it will continue to be all about him. Uh, but I'm still going to need to do my creative stuff and, and maybe involve him if he, if he's into that. So Hopefully he will. I mean, <laughs> he's. We have a little set of bongos, uh, and he's always hitting those. So we'll see whether he takes, you know, the music stuff. Uh, and occasionally, if I pull the guitar out, uh, he will come and strum it for me, which is really uh, nice. So yeah, I think creative-wise, yeah, we hopefully will have some similar interest that we can share as he gets older and. If he wants to make movies, if he wants to make a zombie movie, I'll help him do that. <laughs> Whatever the, yeah. That's a question I ask you in another couple of years and see how that's gone. And 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 from my point of view, you know, I think that that is the fun part about having kids because, you know, some of them will be more into it and some of them will be less, but it actually gives you a new creative energy that you found you didn't have before and you find yourself doing all sorts of different genres and things and and adventures into all sorts of endeavors that you probably would have never done and it and creatively it opens up a whole other world so yeah totally yeah and i mean in terms of write what you know i now know about a whole different world and and who knows where that will take me um yeah so it's cool Hey, George, check out my new duck. I named him Howard. That's also what's nice, because you sort of feel like... Yeah. You can people... You know, I've seen other teachers that kind of go, oh, well, I kind of landed here, and, you know, I'm not doing my filmmaking, but I'm, you know, I'm teaching, and that's at least something. It's like a second best thing. But it's great to see that you've got the the passion for both as well so yeah well i feel really really lucky uh firstly that i did kind of um land where i did because they had the facilities and the ability for me to go from that one day a week instrumental thing and then they realized like oh he's just graduated from vca and stuff like that so it was kind of a um yeah a very fortuitous thing that they sort of uh, yeah, they 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 made it a nice environment for, to make me want to stay, <laughs> basically. And uh, yeah, I and it really does like in terms of my life experience and my worldview and all of that kind of stuff. Um, that comes straight out of teaching and and no like uh, the all the film sets that I've been on and all that kind of stuff before. Like the enjoyment of that doesn't come anywhere near the absolute you know highlights of um of teaching so i'm yeah very happy where i am 